Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Mir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 17 of the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, and thanks for listening. Well, during October 2020, we celebrate American Pharmacist Month and National Pharmacy Week, and both highlight the important role pharmacists play as accessible healthcare professionals and medication use experts. And also in October, October 12th, is the third Women Pharmacist Day, when we celebrate all women in pharmacy, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, student pharmacists, and residents who advance pharmacy and improve patient outcomes. Thank you. We're also recording this podcast not long after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I have to take a moment and acknowledge her significant contributions to our country and the world. I'm so grateful for her efforts on gender equality and gender equity for women and girls. Thank you, Ruth. We will fight on. Now, on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Metalou Henderson. Metalou and I are going to be discussing many things, including her leadership experiences and pioneering research on women in pharmacy. I'm so honored to introduce Metalou to everyone, and I'm also looking forward to hearing more from her about herself and her stories on these pioneering women in pharmacy. Well, Metalou was elected APHA honorary president in 2015 for her lifelong commitment as a scholar and advocate for the profession of pharmacy. During her tenure at Ohio Northern University College of Pharmacy, she served as professor, chair of the pharmacy department, and in several other roles. Metalou also is the author of American Women Pharmacists, Contributions to the Profession. And on today's podcast, we'll talk about her groundbreaking research. And giving back is important to Metalou. In 2009, she donated the Metalou Henderson Women in Pharmacy Collection to the American Institute of the History of Pharmacy. And I'm proud to say that as an AIHP board member, I was able to see this in person. And we'll link to that in our show notes. Well, Metalou, I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. Thank you for being here. And before we begin talking about history and women in pharmacy, maybe you can share a little bit about your background where you grew up, your family, and maybe a brief overview of your career experiences. Thank you, Melissa. Well, I was born in Battle Creek, Michigan, home of Kellogg's and Post, but grew up in a little town next door to it called Union City. I had severe asthma as a child. So in 1951, my parents brought me to Tucson for my health. And I can tell you that was the best thing they ever did for me because I'm very hale and hearty today. I am a second family, so that's why there were just the three of us. My sister was 14 years older than I am and my brother 12. So I was really raised by parents that were the equivalent of other friends' grandparents, but that never stopped anything that went on. So I graduated from high school here in Tucson, and I entered the University of Arizona to take up pharmacy. At that point, it was a five-year bachelor's degree. We spent one year in liberal arts and then four years in the college. So I went from this largest high school in the United States to tiny little college of pharmacy. 
which was great. And it also helped because I was not treated differently than the fellows in my class. After I graduated, I spent about six months at the University of Michigan Hospital, then moved to Battle Creek, where I worked in an apothecary shop. There were nine pharmacists, eight men and me. I was the third woman pharmacist in Calhoun County. Then I went to the hospital and was director there for a number of years. And we did all those things that pharmacists weren't supposed to do in the 1960s. Yes, I even wrote orders. Doctors would co-sign. And then I began to work with pharmacy students at Ferris State College at the time in Michigan. I went up there and helped them start their clinical program. Uh, came back and got my PhD and then went to Ohio Northern where I stayed for 20 years. And yes, I did all kinds of things there, including taking care of student services for a period of time in the college. And I did a lot of things across campus. I retired in 1998, intending to come back to Tucson, but ended up in Michigan for a number of years because of family and finally got out here in 2011 and I'm here to stay. Oh, I love that. You know, it's so interesting when you mentioned the Battle Creek connection. And as I was reflecting, getting ready for this, I have family that for years were in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So when we would go visit for holidays, a trip to Battle Creek, and I think to see the Tony the Tiger, I want to say we went to a museum or exhibit or something like that. And, you know, as a kid, that was super exciting. And I also think it's interesting that you were a part of a second family. And so your parents were a little bit older. I mean, I think in today's world, we're seeing more of that, whether it be blended families or older parents or children being raised by grandparents. So I'm sure that that had an interesting you know, perspective on your life over the years. And I also want to acknowledge as we're getting ready to kick off this very important podcast during American Pharmacist Month and celebrate Women Pharmacist Day, that when I launched MelissaRx Scripts, I had several people, Metalu, that said, you need to talk to Metalou Henderson. You need to have her on, you know, as soon as you can. Let's make this happen. Janelle Sabaka was one of those. Dennis Worthen was another. And I was so excited that we're able to do that for today's episode. You know, I really wanted to get some things under my belt with us having the podcast. But I think some of the things we're going to talk about today, we've reflected on in, in earlier episodes, but I very much appreciate your firsthand experience. So with that, I'm going to just jump in. You know, 2020 is a big year and it's an unusual year. And one of the things that we are celebrating this year is um, the centennial for women winning the right to vote, which happened back in 1920. So you're an expert, you know, in women in pharmacy, and you touched on this in your introduction, but talk with me a little bit about the experience that women in pharmacy have had over the years from, you know, dusting shelves to becoming policy experts and deans of colleges pharmacy. And would you say, has the pharmacy profession mirrored progress in American society? Or what has that been like? I really think that in many cases, pharmacy, and especially the women pharmacists, were ahead of the curve on a lot of other things going on. Because if we look back, we had women pharmacists owning their own drugstores in the 1800s, long before women had prominent roles in other professions. And certainly by the 1920s, They were accepted by the males. All of the previous comments about why does a girl want to be a pharmacist and so on had really gone by the wayside. And by that time, we had a number of daughters and even granddaughters 
of pharmacists that were involved. So I think starting with there, and certainly when it came to World War II, if we're gonna move forward, women did tremendous things. They were really the backbone of pharmacy in the United States during that time, as well as serving in the military. We have a number of women that had prominent roles in the military. And I think then coming out of World War II, women pharmacists were able to, I'm going to say, hold their own with the influx of the veterans coming back and therefore seeing a growth in pharmacy. That is so interesting, especially the ownership aspects. You know, when you think about, yes, the women who were really pioneers early on, owning apothecaries and and running those programs. And then I appreciate your reflection too on the wars and what that looked like. And, you know, I think that's helpful because for our student pharmacists today, you know, the demographics are clearly more female students than male students in the class. I think it's about 65, 35, but it wasn't always like that. And especially in some of the groups or people that we're going to talk about, you know, they were maybe one of, or there was a handful of, or, or not that many. So I like that idea, the continuum of history that you shared, but also how women pharmacists were trailblazers and really kind of pioneers in moving things forward, not just in pharmacy, but probably in healthcare in general, I would think. They were, and actually, again, reflecting when I was a pharmacy student graduating in 1961, 10% of the pharmacy students were female, and about three to five percent of the practicing pharmacists were female. So you have to, again, from then on, there was great changes happened for a lot of reasons, including many of the societal things. Yeah, wow. Okay, that's very interesting. And so for a quick comment, when we began to see the real increase in women students and then pharmacists, it was when they decided that they needed to recruit women into the sciences and pharmacy just came to the top because we have been around for a long time and things were very easy for women to go to pharmacy school. Let's say compared to medical school, physics, whatever. Well, yes, and we do know that this focus on women in science, women in STEM continues, that you know we have had a significant increase in the number of students, but I have to tell you, and I think this has probably made you smile too, to see the current Miss America, who's a student pharmacist, Camille from school in Virginia, and to just see her championing science and talking about the opioid crisis and you know why the role of pharmacists matters has just warmed my heart so much. Bringing you know this whole idea of how do you bring more women into the profession into the field and look at it in a different way. So you and I, you know, share a history or an interest or passion related to history of pharmacy and. You know, when we look at historical women in pharmacy, one of the people that I always like to talk about is Zeta Mary Cooper. So I know that you know a lot about Zeta Mary Cooper. You also know people who actually were able to talk with people who knew Zeta Cooper, which when you told me that, that kind of gives me chills. So let's talk about her influence. And then I know you also are a past president of Kappa Epsilon, the organization that she founded, and that next year KE is going to celebrate its 100th anniversary. So lots to unpack with Zeta. Let's talk some more. 
Well, Zeta was really a woman so far ahead of her time, considering that she became a faculty member in 1897 at the University of Iowa and stayed there till she retired in 1942. And she also believed in mentoring students, both male and female, and doing things to get them involved in pharmacy, organizations and so on. And I have to say this, in 1912, and I'm gonna call her Zeta, she's become Zeta to me because I've worked with her so much. She went to her first APHA meeting, and at the same time, the American Council on Pharmaceutical Faculties met. At that time, both organizations met at the same time. And as far as the pharmacy faculty group, she was the first woman to attend and she never missed a meeting until she retired. She was very involved in APHA. She was one of the petitioners to seek recognition for a women's section of APHA and she served with them quite a bit. And of course, she became very, very active in AACP. Well, I mean, AC, ACPE became AACP. We can get, lose and all these uh, acronyms. Yeah. But anyway, um, in terms of AACP, she became active in the Committee on the Activities of Students and Alums. And she worked there with Dean Rufus Lyman, and they became great pals. And I'm going to use that term because they took care of pharmacy education for many years working together. Out of this committee came, along with the women's section of APHA, came the need for an organization for women students where they could get together and share ideas. And that then became Kappa Epsilon, which was founded in 1921. Could have been founded earlier, but we had something known as the Spanish flu. Yes. And World War I. Something, just a real quick side note, a hundred years ago, KE wasn't founded and was delayed because of the Spanish flu. 2020 to 2021, KE is trying to figure out how we're really going to celebrate next year because of COVID and so on. So it's kind of an interesting tidbit that doesn't mean anything, but it's important. No, I, I think it does. And actually, you know that I'm involved with several initiatives with Zeta Cooper or Zeta for the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. And I've reflected, thinking back, she lived through our last major pandemic. She lived through the Spanish flu. So sometimes, you know, when I might get discouraged or wonder like how long this is going to go on or whatever, I just think about Zeta's resilience and her grit and then what she did, you know, the founding of KE. And I appreciate that you shared that. The other thing that we've talked a lot about with Zeta is her inclusiveness. And, you know, yes, she was oftentimes the only woman or maybe one of two, but she wanted to make sure that all voices were heard. And we're really seeing a resurgence of that, I think, in 2020 related to making sure that people can have a seat at the table or their voices be heard. And then, you know, the other thing that I think is so fascinating about Zeta and, you know, really gets back to some of the things that you talked about with these pioneering women was her focus on innovation. 
and how she started so many things and what that looked like because there weren't a lot of other people that were doing exactly what she was doing, which I think is really cool. I would like to continue just with a couple more things about uh, Zeta Cooper and AACP. In 1922, she was elected secretary of AACP. Now, that is the only time she apparently ever ran for an office because she was secretary of AACP until she retired in 1942. She ran the organization out of her office at the College of Pharmacy and she received $100 a year for her work. And also during this time is when she and Rufus Lyman really were able to make great strides with the organization and so on. The other thing I would mention, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, was how well Zeta worked with everyone. Yes, she promoted women, but she worked very, very well with men. And let's face it, in her era in the colleges of pharmacy, it was male. And although I never had the opportunity to meet Zeta because she died in 1961, I was very good friends with Marjorie Coghill, who was one of her students and who talked to me a great deal about Zeta. And then as I began to get involved in pharmacy nationally, I was able to meet with a number of men who had worked with her. And the story I got, and this is a story, is that whatever Zeta wanted, she got. No man would ever say no to Zeta. Wow. I'm so grateful that you've shared those reflections and that you were able to talk with someone who worked directly with her is so neat. And, you know, you mentioned the $100 and at our very first Zeta Cooper conference, Lucinda Main, who is the current executive vice president and CEO of the American Associations of Colleges of Pharmacy, she was a keynote speaker. And she reflected on that. She also had seen that from the history and, you know, really talked about Zeta's legacy and the arc from when Zeta did that to where, you know, we are today at, at that point, that was in 2016, but it is a fascinating story. And there's so much more that we could drill down on and continue to talk about. But I, I do want to shift gears because there's another phenomenal person that as we celebrate Women Pharmacists Day, it's important that we reflect on. And that would be Gloria Nehemiah Frankie. And tell me more about Gloria. And I know that with Gloria, there were several examples of her being the first and she also spent a lot of time tackling difficult or sensitive issues. And I also feel fortunate that I was able to meet Gloria in my pharmacy career when I was out in DC and spend some time with her, but I did not know her as well as you definitely know her. So I look forward to your insights on Gloria. Well, I met Gloria in 1961 when I went to work at the University of Michigan Hospital Pharmacy. Her husband, Don, at that point was chief pharmacist. That was the term. And this Marjorie Coghill that I had mentioned knew Gloria, and she told Gloria it was her responsibility to look out for me, young graduate. So immediately I got involved in things uh, via Gloria. And then as I went to meetings and so on, I began to spend more time with Gloria. And over the last, I'm gonna say more than 20 years, I spent a lot of time with Gloria, and she would talk about a lot of things, 
But most importantly, it was watching her and seeing how she did things and how well-known she was. Gloria was known throughout the world as if somebody was a pharmacist and they would say, did you know Gloria Frankie? And she never forgot names. I would be in the lobby of the hotel with her at APHA, and it might take us an hour to go 20 feet because everybody wanted to talk to Gloria. And yes, she did so many firsts. In fact, she wasn't old enough to take pharmacy boards when she graduated from Purdue. One of the first things Gloria wanted to do was go to work for Eli Lilly in Indianapolis. So she applied for a job and they told her, no, they did not hire women. Wow. Gloria went on and did other things, but Gloria never forgot anything. And when I would be, uh, finally, I think it was in the 70s or early 80s, uh, Lily finally did write her a letter and apologize for not hiring her. But being with Gloria at many meetings after that, we always had to find the Lily representatives so she could remind them they would not hire her. And these men, you could just see them, they would kind of want to sink down through the floor because they knew what was coming, but she just enjoyed doing that. And of course, Gloria is the first woman to get the Remington Medal and so many other awards, honorary president of APHA. And of course, she worked at APHA for a number of years uh, in various capacities and was part of the founding group of ASHP when it sprung off from APHA. And she did that organization for so many, so many years. Oh, I could go on about Gloria for a long time, so maybe we should kind of slow down on that. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was the APHA executive resident, one of the things that we learn as a resident is the history of the building, you know, 2215 Constitution Avenue, and they take you through and you learn the different spaces and what's been housed where over the years. And I remember George Griffinhagen, who you and I both knew pretty well, said to me, this is where Gloria Frankie used to sit in by the library. It's not the library anymore. It's kind of the, where the old or the current boardroom is. But she, he said, and this is where the hospital section of pharmacists was formed and where Gloria served as executive secretary. So that was always a part of my the tour that I would give there. And I just thought about like her leadership at that time and, you know, the icon status that she ended up with. And, you know, there's several of us who talk about seeing her and you mentioned at meetings. And I remember thinking whenever I'd be in her presence, like get it together, you know, sit up straight, you know, make sure you're not talking, you know, when the speaker's there and just really have it together, but just also so grateful for all the things that she did and how much she advanced the profession of pharmacy for all of us. And she was just, you know, such a leader and continued and, you know, was was still at pharmacy meetings into her 80s and, and encouraging and mentoring. And I also love the story that, you know, she was asked to kind of look out for you. And I think that's a good message for us to share to, with our listeners during American Pharmacist Month and Women Pharmacist Day, is that if there's someone that you think you could provide guidance to, or for our students, pharmacists or residents, if there's someone you admire or look up to, let's make this connection. Because don't you think those that look out for each other is so, so important in pharmacy? Very much so. And the other thing that we might want to mention about Gloria 
is she never was elected to an office. So just showing how you can be a great leader and great mentor without being the president of something. Yeah, I think that's an important fact. And then you also talked about her work with FIP and international pharmacy. And I remember, you know, I was fortunate to attend the FIP meeting in Vienna and I spoke on pharmacy technicians, but her, like how she was viewed globally, it was people always wanted to know where Gloria was, what she was working on, what she was doing, and that she always continued to want to learn, learn and grow throughout her career, like whatever was new or different or, you know, what she could continue to become involved with and champion. And I think that's, that's really exciting from a growth mindset and lifelong learning. Yes, very much so. And after Gloria passed away, there was a large memorial service for her. And I went, as did a lot of other people. And afterwards, I'll have to admit, we went to a restaurant and had a couple of glasses of wine. And what we did was tell Gloria stories about different aspects, what, how she had interacted with us. You know, I think that's so important of celebrating someone's life. And I do know, we, you know, with Gloria being a Remington medalist and a, um, a Whitney Award winner. And then also, I think when she saw the people that she mentored, you know, I've had both Lucinda Maine and Jen Engel on the podcast, and they both spoke so glowingly of Gloria and her influence in their lives that I think she reflected and saw like her reach and impact extended through the work of others too. And that's a really cool legacy, I think, for Women Pharmacists Day is that it's what you do, but it's how you develop others. Well, another real quick one on Gloria. When I was asked by Dennis Wortham and so on to write the book on women pharmacists, you need somebody to write the introduction. And I wanted Gloria to do it. So what we did, because she was getting older at that time, I would draft a chapter and I would send it to her. And then she would get back with me. And one of the things she would often say now, Metaloo, I don't want to tell you what to do, but have you thought about including this or that or whatever yes. it was? You know, I, that is so, well, first of all, I bet that was a little intimidating when you were thinking about having to approach her related to writing the forward. I mean, that's amazing. And that, that, is, that was definitely the right call and the way to do it. But that was probably a little nerve wracking. But I also love the coaching she provided to you. Because it just sometimes having someone provide those kind of insights can make such a difference. Well, and she also, of course, contributed a lot of literature to me because she had a lot of files. Yes. And she would send me packages of these papers. And on each one, she would say, you can keep, return to me. Another one returned to me. Well, of course, naturally, anything that went back, I copied. But so a lot of the facts in the book indirectly or directly came from Gloria. You know, I think that's an important piece too, as we're going through things. And, you know, I'm pleased uh, serving on the AIHP board. We are asking people right now to document stories of pharmacists and their interactions through COVID and what that looks like. And I think keeping things, you know, we're, we're such an electronic digital world now on our phones and with our apps and all that. But I think having things and keeping the history, whatever that is, or making sure that when a milestone or something significant happens that we document it, that was something that was kind of drilled into me as a resident. So that she had all that, you must have been like, I mean, I would think it was like Christmas when her little packages arrived. 
Well, and that's, for example, the letters from Eli Lilly. I have seen, but I was never allowed to copy. Oh. And I have no idea where they are now after her. I'm, I'm assuming that some of the family have. Has those. Yeah. As we celebrate Women Pharmacists Day, you know, it's important, and I've mentioned your book, that we recognize and talk about sister pharmacists. And, you know, when, when I mention sister pharmacists, I mean nuns. So tell me more about your research on this important group in healthcare who, you know, for a really long time provided care for the poor and the underserved. Well, we have to start by Gloria again, who told Sister Margaret Wright that it was her responsibility to document the role of the sister pharmacist and that I would help her. <laughs> and that's how I really got involved in that. And uh, Sister Margaret and I, we had a lot of fun doing it. We searched out a lot of information. And also I have to say, I'm not Catholic, so believe me, my learning curve was straight up learning about this. We did find 900 women uh, sisters who were pharmacists starting back in the 1800s because they became very early on in hospital pharmacy because it was the orders that started hospitals. And therefore, the pharmacy would be run by one of the sisters. And they were phenomenal in reading what they did, coming up through, especially into the 20s and 30s. They were doing things in hospital pharmacy that nobody else even thought of as a pin, the size of a pin. They were discussing whether there should be unit dose versus ward stock in the 1920s. And then they became, of course, very involved in the founding of ASHP. And I didn't don't go back and double check it, but I think there were 57 sister pharmacists who were charter members of ASHP. It's such an important and interesting segment of the profession of pharmacy. And I think acknowledging and, and thank the work that you did with Sister Margaret Wright, I got to know Sister Margaret a little bit with my work with NABP and the State Boards of Pharmacy, and you know she was with the Illinois Board of Pharmacy for many years, but that you captured it, I think, is so important. And by the way, Sister Margaret told me, and this is true of many others, that she became a pharmacist because her mother superior called her in and said, we need a pharmacist and you're going to pharmacy school. Oh my gosh, wow. Many of those early, almost all of them early, did not necessarily pick pharmacy. Pretty much it was the order who made that decision. Wow, you know, and I've mentioned that I was um, the APHA executive resident. One of the things that you do when you're in Washington, D.C. is you visit other national associations and national pharmacy organizations. So I was doing a visit up to ASHP and I met with their leadership and I spent some time with Mary Jo Riley, who at the time was the number two there. And she had just a really keen understanding of the history of hospital pharmacists and health system pharmacists and the nuns. And I have to tell you, Madalou, she told me some stories. You know, I grew up, went to Catholic school, grade school and high school, and we had nuns. But, you know, at that time, the nuns were just kind of transitioning from wearing habits or their, you know, their kind of their habits changed and stuff. They, some had veils, some didn't. But Mary Jo shared stories about going to the mid-year meeting and that she was younger. And so, you know, was kind of asked to be a liaison with the nuns. And it was just, it was just fascinating. 
And it was so interesting, you know, Sister Gonzalez, who was the first female president of ASHP, I just am so grateful for the legacy and the history. And that sisters, you know, with founding the Mayo Clinic, you know, have just made in healthcare across the country. Oh, they very definitely were. And I'm not wanting to talk about their other aspects with healthcare. Uh, but of course, I was really a little bit more interested in their roles as pharmacists. Oh, for sure. For sure. And get, having the opportunity to meet many of them again early in my career as a hospital pharmacist, I'd go to meetings and you automatically knew they were sister pharmacists because they all had their habits. And I did get to know Sister Gonzalez. And uh, the first time she came to an ASHP meeting in her new habit, when everybody changed to the short ones, she wanted me to know that she had legs. Oh my gosh, that is just so interesting and, and so funny. And, you know, again, I think Sister Gonzalez, um, Sister Margaret Wright, Sister Mary Louise, I did a lot of work with her over the years when she was at ASHP in the accreditation services and her work on with pharmacy technicians and with residents, just really important. And it blows my mind that you mentioned that in 1920, in the 20s, they were talking about unit dose. I mean, that's wild, right? They were running around. I'm, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they were up on the wards because they were all wards then, probably writing orders. And again, I bet many of the doctors would never say no to a sister. Yes, I think that was one thing that you would very much learn that you would not say no to. So on my, on my podcast, it's just been such a joy and a treasure to have you with us today. And one of the things that I usually conclude with is asking, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rx Scripps? Well, I think, again, looking back at my career, and I do have to say that my parents were so supportive of me going into pharmacy when there weren't many females. And I can still hear my dad say, do it, but do it right or don't do it which meant that anytime I was asked to do something, he would have expected me to take the risk and make it work and to not let anybody else tell me I couldn't do it. I certainly did that and I tried to pass that on to students and so on. That is such a good one. And then the other thing that I mentioned in your introduction, and if you could help just bring us home with your reflections on this, is giving back is important to you. And you've done that with the University of Arizona. You've also done that with the American Institute for the History of Pharmacy, sharing your papers and your research collection. So tell us a little bit more, you know, as we're in American Pharmacist Month, National Pharmacy Week, and we're celebrating Women Pharmacists Day, why that matters. Well, I think, first of all, I have to go back my father was not well when I was in college, so pretty much I had to put myself through pharmacy school, except I could live at home. And so fortunately at that time, there were scholarships available here at the University of Arizona, and I, the faculty made sure I got one at least every year. So that's how I got through pharmacy school. So when I look back, I want other students to have the same opportunity that I did. And that's why I established my scholarship here at the University of Arizona. And it does recognize leadership and mentoring by the students. And to be eligible for it, they need to be actually in their fourth year of pharmacy, which means they're out on rotations, because I want to see what they've done while they've been a pharmacy student. 
I also have an endowed fund at Ohio Northern University to recognize leadership and mentoring. Uh, that's a little different because of the, the structure of Ohio Northern. And that money, when a student receives it, must go to them attending a meeting, again, to share. So that's part of why I want to give back. And I think the other thing that I tried to do was to give back things I knew to my students. 25 plus years, and also to young pharmacists. And I love now seeing what some of my former, I guess they're still mine, students doing in their careers today. They're passing it on. That is just wonderful. I love the philanthropy and the giving it back that you're doing, and also the encouraging people to attend meetings. That was one thing that I was able to do when I was out in DC is support travel for some students at Drake. That was kind of my first putting my toe in the water because I know how important it is to interact with other students and practitioners across the country and then potentially around the world. And so those are big things. Well, I want to thank you, Metalu. This has been fantastic. It's really a dream come true to have you on the podcast today and to learn from you. And I feel like I learn new things and you have so many gems. So I look forward to us staying in touch. This is the Melissa Rx podcast. To everyone listening, please subscribe to our show and follow me, Melissa Muir Corrigan, on social media. And I also want to thank my producer, Kate Cruz, with Executive Podcast Solution. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Melissa, for letting me join you today. <laughs>